Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity podcast. Our goal is to help individuals as well as health and fitness professionals enhance their capacity and reach their untapped potential. We aim to have the listener leave with practical advice they can apply today. Hey everybody, today we have Cisco Reyes on the podcast. He's Associate Professor at the Department of Health and Human Performance at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon. He teaches kinesiology, applied biomechanics, physiology of exercise training and conditioning. He's also a professor of motor learning and development. He's originally from Moscow, Idaho. He played college baseball at Pacific University in Forest Grove, where he got a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science. He also attended the University of Idaho, where he earned his uh, Master of Science in Physical Education with an emphasis in exercise selection, or sorry, exercise science. He has a PhD in education with emphasis in sports science as well. Cisco is a member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and he's actually the state director for the NSCA Oregon State Region. In addition to doing this, he actually has the founder and head athletic performing coach for Reyes Integrated Sports Enhancement, or RISE, where he's on a mission to elevate and empower youth athletes. So he's teaching, he's training, he's involved in the local NSCA board. Today we discuss basically everything regarding youth training. We go a little bit of the background of youth training on some key definitions and principles. And then we talk about blending academics and training, kind of the evidence-based training approach. We review principles of training youth versus adults, how you might differentiate like a youth intake or evaluation versus an adult. We drive in a diet and recovery with a youth spin. Cisco is really a top-level professor, top-level coach, and overall great person. And the conversation we have today is awesome, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. If you do enjoy, subscribe, and hopefully listen to more great conversations down the line. All right, Cisco, thanks for taking the time to talk shot today. Our topic today is going to be talking like youth training, long-term athletic development, principles like that. But before we get into it, give us a little background on who you are, how you got to where you're at, where you're at currently. Sure. Uh, well, first off, again, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed listening to the previous episodes and obviously love having a chance to sit down and chat with you and learn from you. And so again, very honored that you asked me to be on your podcast. Um, So I guess it all started with a stack of muscle and fitness magazines uh, when I was like (laughs) 10 years old uh, in my uncle's room. Uh, Back then, my uncle was big into lifting weights, big into bodybuilding. So at a young age, I was exposed to that type of stuff and really enjoyed seeing, you know, muscles get big and kind of how the body can transform with, you know, exercise. So with that, you know, with my uncle's encouragement, you know, I started doing push-ups and exercises on a regular day to the point where when I was in high school, my parents bought a, like a hulky, super heavy, bulky, multi-exercise weight stack machine that went in our basement. And my parents pretty much just turned me loose and just said, here, go have, go have fun and really enjoyed the you know, weightlifting and, um, but, you know, I lifted like a bodybuilder because at that time, that's all that I knew with my uncle and, you know, the, the, the magazines. And at that time, the, you know, the, the media, but we didn't have social media. So I didn't really know any better. And so when I got to Pacific University here in Oregon and had the opportunity to play baseball, you know, I continued to lift like a bodybuilder because that's all that I, all that I really knew. And at that time, you know, I can, I can say that I had the muscles and the definitions to show, but I kind of noticed that over my four years at Pacific, I didn't get any faster. I didn't get any really stronger. I wasn't as explosive. And especially in my last two years, I was battling a lot of just nagging lower leg injuries, which I didn't really understand at the time what that was. Uh, but then I graduated in 2003 from Pacific with a bachelor's in exercise science and also minored in coaching. Um, and so would you play in uh, base, what'd you play in baseball? What position? So in high school, I was a middle infielder. I played shortstop. And then when I got okay. to um, college, I played, I played all three outfield positions and uh, yeah. kind of left the mark as a, as a defensive specialist when I was at the <laughs> I mean, but my, my, the pitchers knew that if that ball was in the air and it was in my area, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna hit the ground. That was kind of a yeah. mentality I had, but unfortunately the glitz and glamour is what you do in the, in the hitters, in the batter's box. And that wasn't my, strong suit at the time, but, um, it is what it is, I guess. (laughs) Um, but but, yeah, so after Pacific, I went to the university of Idaho for my master's and eventually my PhD. 
And my, uh, I guess you can say my aha moment uh, came in grad school at Idaho when I was exposed to true strength and conditioning in my grad classes when we were digging through, you know, peer-reviewed research articles. And the one that resonates to me uh, was a complex, uh, complex training power article by Dr. Dan Baker, which is kind of what started the uh, going down the rabbit hole of, wow, everything that I've been doing this whole time has been completely wrong in how I'm preparing for athletic performance. Um, and so that's kind of where my passion and my constant inquiry for, you know, strength and conditioning started. Uh, so during my time at Idaho, both my master's and my PhD, I was a volunteer strength and conditioning coach for the athletic department. Um, I coached under uh, Coach Scott Gattikin, um and worked with football, men's basketball, tennis, and swimming. I never had a lead with any of those teams, but I was just there in the weight room all the time, just assisting the other uh, coaches there and just getting to know strength and conditioning as a profession. Uh, during my time in grad school, I also coached high school baseball during the summertime and then also taught for the university lab classes, activity classes, as well as working on the research lab, um, looking at the mechanics of the baseball swing as well as uh, post-activation potentiation. Um, after the University of Idaho, my first job was out at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. I was there from 2008 to 2011. Um, and then had the opportunity to move back to the Pacific Northwest where I was hired on as a, uh, associate professor at Concordia University from 2011 to 2017. Um, I had a really, really sweet gig at Concordia. Uh, during my six years there, I was not only a professor, but I had the great opportunity of blending the academics with the athletics by also serving as the director of athletic performance where I oversaw the the training and conditioning across the majority of the varsity team. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to take students and bridge the gap between the science we talked about in the classroom to the practical applications of the weight room to really create evidence-based teaching and training for the, for the student athletes. Um, and, 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 you know, obviously proud and happy to say that some of those students that uh, mentored under me have gone on to become, you know, qualified professionals in the world of strength and conditioning, whether it's the collegiate setting, the professional setting, or even just going on to grad school in their respective, um, you know, disciplines. Uh, so since 2017 and now, I'm currently the associate professor at Linfield College here in the health and human performance uh, department. Um, I teach biomechanics, kinesiology, uh, as well as our, I guess you would call it our, our strength and conditioning class. Okay. So I want to take you back on a few things. One is you you dropped something, which we'll maybe get into later, but you said uh, you did some research in post-activation potential. So yeah. to the layman's person, what does that mean? What is that? So uh, so I guess the, the common term within the field, yeah. uh, we refer to it as complex training or contrast training. It's where you basically alternate uh, uh, sets of like heavy exercises, like a back squat, deadlift, bench press, and you alternate it with a more uh, lighter implement or more explosive type of movement, like a medicine ball, a vertical jump, a 10-yard sprint. And it's just a way to, um, I guess, manipulate the central nervous system and the neuromuscular system in order to en enhance the performance of the ballistic and ex explosive set. And that Dr. Baker article that I talked about that kind of gave me that aha moment um, was looking at exactly this concept of complex training. And in his discussion of the research article, um, he had a paragraph talking about weighted bat use in baseball. And so obviously coming from a baseball background, that really yeah. resonated with me of, wow, I really want to look into this because I was never a big weighted bat user, but obviously a lot of people were. And if you've ever swung a weighted bat, yeah. took the weight off and swung your regular bat, oh my gosh, like my regular bat feels so much lighter now. And yeah. so just kind of understanding the science behind that sensation of, uh, you know, going heavy to going light. And that's what you usually do, right? You always go heavy first to technically ramp up the nervous system and then go explosive. Uh, sometimes, I mean, obviously some people do, you know, and then, yeah. you know, within warm up protocols, they actually would do the potentiation first before they get into their heavy, you know, yeah. foundational lifts, whether yeah. it's deadlifts or bench press or whatever it may be. Again, I don't think there's any right and there's a wrong, but um, you know, there are certain situations where we want to do the heavy first for the sake of making the person more explosive for their event competition, whatever yeah. it may be. 
So then another question I have with your just track is the whole blending of performance training, real world training and academics. Yeah. Yeah. How do you go about doing that? Do you have like a, a process? Do you whatever read X journal every month? Do you follow something? How do you how would you incorporate that into your program design? Like how do you blend the two fields? Which yeah, I know is a big it, question, it, but it is a big, it's a great question. And, you know, I, it was something that it, I felt personally, it was a little easy um, yeah. because, you know, being an, not just an academic, but just wanting to be a lifelong learner, you know, you pick up on ideas and it's not necessarily through the research, even though that is, you know, obviously an avenue of looking through, you know, the journal of strength and conditioning research, or nowadays with social media, if you just follow a journal, they'll post something yeah. on Instagram or Twitter that kind of makes you dig deeper into that topic. Um, but just talking to professionals like you, you know, listening to podcasts and listening to what other professionals are doing in the weight room, then allows me to bring it to the classroom and ask students like, you know, based off of this concept of whether it's PAP or the FMS or corrective exercise or, um, you know, altitude training masks, whatever it may be, let's look at the data and let's talk about the practical significance. What are the takeaways? What are the pros and cons of the research article? But then being able to go back to the weight room with the soccer team, the basketball team, the baseball team, and then try and implement it and try and, you know, see if it actually works with the specific population that that we're dealing with. So it enriched me as a strength coach in the weight room because I had a little, I had evidence to kind of back up the things that I was talking about. But then also it, it enhanced the classroom experience because whether it's myself or the handful of students that were working with me, we can bring those experiences to the classroom to share with the other kids to show, hey, remember Cisco was talking about this? Well, we actually went to the weight room and tried it with a team. And now we're coming back with the results or the conclusions or the outcomes of what actually happened when we tried something. Yeah, yeah. One one issue, particularly in the PT world, is there's, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, a big push on evidence-based practice, which is great, yeah. but it almost got too far down that way where you wouldn't do something yeah. that was logical and common sense because it wasn't yeah. followed by the evidence. So it's a, exactly. it, it's a tricky, exactly. it's trickier than it sounds at times. Um, it is tricky, and, and that's one thing I try and tell my students, too. It's you got to think critically here. Yeah. You, know, you look at a research article and who are they working with? Like, what are the, what's the equipment that they have? What's their their time frame? You know, we may not be able to do that because we don't have that equipment or we're working with, you know, 21 year old, you know, high level softball players. And they're working with, you know, 40 year old, you know, yeah. everyday Jane type of people. And so, you know, that's part of my job as an educator and mentor is to take the data like you talked about, but use it and think about it critically and apply it critically. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing you kind of left out in your story is you currently run a gym called Rise Fitness, which, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of specializes in kind of training youth athletes. Is that? Yeah. And then tell me about that and kind of how you got into the whole youth training aspect. Yeah, so um, I think if you and I had a conversation just even a year and a half ago to two years ago and yeah. asked me if I would have any interest in working with kids, I would have said no. <laughs> like I really enjoy, <laughs> you know, working with college athletes, but when you have kids of your own, your perspectives kind of change, you know, life experiences change for the better or the worse. And it kind of makes you look at life in a different way and where your services are really needed. And so, yeah. So in addition to my academic duties. Um, I'm also uh, the uh, owner and head athletic uh, performance specialist for uh, Reyes Integrated Sports Enhancement or RISE, acronym is RISE, uh, training and consulting. And my overall mission is to elevate and empower the youth athlete uh, through the use of strength training. Um, so I really focus on kids between the ages of 10 to 16. So we're talking late elementary school and primary middle school, because, you know, as we've gone through that period. It's a little bit of an awkward time, both physically and also emotionally. And so, you know, seeing my kids go through, starting to go through that uh, age group, you know, with the lack of resources and as well as the opportunities to really enhance the physical literacy for kids nowadays. Um, my goal with RISE is to use the avenue of strength training to really build confidence and confidence really in their ability to move uh, so that the ultimate goal 
is to um, promote and give them confidence and competence to be a lifelong mover. So they're active through adulthood all the way into late adulthood. And so it can obviously try and prevent some of these public health issues that we're seeing now with obesity and, and, and in general, just a sedentary you know, lifestyle. Um, and so what started it was, you know, what I'm really proud about with RISE that it really started organically in the sense of, again, life events kind of happened. I wasn't really looking to do something like this. Um, but again, when you've got a family and you've got kids of your own, it really makes you look at life in a different way. And so um, my oldest daughter was diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago. And so, you know, my wife and I wanted to understand a little bit more about it because we weren't quite, you know, we don't know exactly what that is. And as I read up on some aspects of ADHD, one explanation um, that was given to us is that kids with ADHD have this um, inability or they had this inability to suppress some of these primitive infant survival reflexes that they had when they were, when they were, when they were babies. And so when I looked into that more on how to make these reflexes go away, a lot of the remedies that I found were through exercise. And what I mean by exercise, you know, when I was reading through them, I thought to myself, this is like FMS corrective exercise stuff, which is obviously like right up my alley. And so when I was reading about it, I saw lots of chops and lifts so that their, their limbs are going across their midline for, you know, better brain connectivity to soft rolling patterns, to single leg hip bridging, to, you know, bear crawling and all these things. And so, of course, I'm thinking to myself, I think I can help my daughter with some of these things. Um, and so while she's going through that, you know, she's playing more, I'll say, quote unquote, competitive softball and whatever you want to define as competitive at the when at the tenue level. But, you know, it is what it is. And so I was really seeing parents pushing their kids to be super athletic, you know, really wanting them to be have all these highly developed skills within the game when I'm coaching them and I'm watching them and they just lack this movement vocabulary in the sense of the inability to skip sideways to do a bear crawl properly to hold themselves up on a bar like on a like a dead hang pole mm -hmm. um, but yet parents and even us as coaches are asking them to perform all of these really complex skills that goes with the game of softball and so the longer the season progressed and the more I was working with these kids you know I'm thinking to myself well, it's really hard for me to teach your kids algebra if they don't understand addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division first. I like and that. so, and then obviously, you know, as you're well aware of, you're, I also see a lot of kids being pushed towards early specialization. And we obviously know the dangers behind that, but parents, you know, they're naive. They, they don't, they're just, they just want the best for their kids. So they're just not educated um, on this topic. And so, you know, with my understanding of the neuromuscular system, I knew that strength training can create, and really enhance the connection and the synchronization of the CNS to the skeletal muscle, which can actually make it easier for kids to acquire, you know, motor skills. And so while I can't necessarily talk parents off the ledge of wanting to do specialization, early sports specialization, I thought to myself, well, at least let me educate you. And if anything, at least let me help your kid move in a variety of ways through strength training. Yeah. Um, and so if kids aren't able to get through, you know, the physical literacy training like we used to, um, or they don't receive it as, as much, you know, like, I don't know, I'm sure like you, Nick, you know, we, we rode our bikes everywhere. We played kickball in the cul-de-sac. We would play, um, you know, two-hand touch football or, you know, basketball in someone's uh, driveway. You know, they don't get that as much. I felt this strong passion a little over a year ago to introduce strength training to, to kids, not just for the sport performance piece but hopefully to really increase their physical literacy through strength training. So they remain active, you know, through a lifespan. So then what do you see as the big differences between training the youth and maybe amateur and adult athletes? There's probably a bit, a lot of reasons, but what are some big things you see or focus on? Um, I think the biggest piece is obviously when I was working with, um, with collegiate athletes, you know, they know that they're there to work. You know, so when they came down to the weight room, they had to be there because their coaches told them to. And they they obviously understood that what we're about to do in the weight room is going to transfer over to, you know, the pitch, the basketball court, you know, the soccer, you know, the baseball field, diamond, whatever it may be. But with kids, they don't know. I mean, 
some of these kids, they just get dropped off by their parents, their parents leave and they're looking at me kind of like, so what do we do now type of thing. So I think the biggest um, difference is really trying to disguise the work that we're going to do with play. I know in, in motor learning, we kind of call that deliberate play. And so, um, you know, the kids want to be entertained and most importantly, they want to have fun and I want it to make it fun. You know, I, I want them to understand that exercise and especially strength training can absolutely be fun. It doesn't necessarily have to feel like work. So from the analogies I use to how I structure the hour, you know, even to the music that's playing, I want it to be fun and I want it to be driven by the kids themselves. Um, I try and give them as much as, as much autonomy as possible. So whether it's exercise selection for the day, you know, you've got, we're going to do a squat today, but here are three squat exercises that you can choose from um, all the way to maybe how we go about our warm up to make it a little bit more of like a play environment. Um, I think that's really my biggest piece. On, or my base difference between the college athletes to the youth athletes. But man, I've got some 11 year olds that they, they come to the rise lab and they are ready to go to work and it's yeah. so much fun to watch. And, yeah. you know, with me coming from the collegiate setting, it, it obviously is a very easy transition because they look at me and they're just like, Cisco, I, I want to do more. I want to, I want to try the 15 pound instead of the 10 pound. Can I do another set of this or that? And I'm just like, okay, like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it. If, if you're ready to do it, yeah, let's go. But in regards to movements, you know, Nick, you know, it's just, we're teaching them how to do basic movements here with hip hinge, squat, push, pull, you know, again, the, the deficiencies with kids are obviously different than collegiate athletes, but in the grand scheme of things, once they're moving and once they're exercising, we're, you know, we're teaching them the same type of concepts. So put you on the spot a little bit. Is there what is the latest evidence on training youth? I know it used to be I don't even know like a legend or whatnot that if you whatever have a young person put a weight on their system, it's going to ruin their bone development. It can harm their just overall growth. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. that's been proven wrong by evidence. Yeah. But like, <laughs> what, what do you what do you know on that side of things? So yeah. Just like, um, no, absolutely. No, I think the I think the two names that the listeners need to be aware of if, if this is something that really interests them um, is a Avery Fagenbaum and Rodri Lloyd. Um, so those are t the two uh, researchers who have um, published a lot of literature regarding strength training for for youth and across their, you know, whether it's an experimental design research article or if it's more of a review you know, they're coming up with this evidence that, you know, if kids are doing strength training properly, the benefits of them strength training is going to last more than just their season. It's going to last a lifetime with some of these, you know, adaptations that occur. Um, so, yeah, you're right. There's this common myth that if a kid is going to do resistance training, that they're going to mess up their growth plates. It's going to get deformed. It's going to stunt. It's going to stunt their growth, and that is obviously false. Um, was there a paper uh, that said that like 20 years ago, or is that just somehow? I don't think grew? so. I, yeah. I, from what I've from what I've gathered, I think it's just hearsay. Yeah. You know, just someone someday just said, you know, something might have happened where their kid was lifting weights and just kind of noticed that they weren't growing or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But again, I'm going to preface by saying that, you know, if the kid is doing resistance training well uh, properly you know yes then yeah. like anything else if you do something poorly then yeah you're gonna have negative consequences yeah you don't need a um, 10 year old doing five sets of five of squats five days a week oh no. yeah <laughs> they don't need to be doing yeah heavy like yeah. matches and yeah, yeah none of that yeah um but yeah so they, 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 they have evidence to show that the, the mechanical stress from the weight bearing moves of resistance training um it's actually essential for for bone growth and bone formation um and so they're actually seeing that the mechanical stress of resistance training for the bones, like I said, and then you combine that with the natural um, growth-related bone mass that, uh, that the kids will get through puberty will actually lead to higher bone mass when they're older. Um, They've shown so, that in like osteoporosis and things like that, where you actually load the bone, it helps reduce your risk of bone thinning when you're 70. So why is it any different when you're 12? Exactly. And so especially yeah. if you're developing those habits as a 12-year-old and you're still lifting mm -hmm. weights as a 16-year-old, as a 26-year-old, as a 36-year-old, yeah. then again, that, that the long-term benefits of you lifting weights since you were you know, 16 years old 
you're going to obviously have stronger bones and fight off osteoporosis when you're older, especially for females. Um, Um, They probably did that in whatever, the 1700s when we didn't have cars and all that stuff and they probably didn't have osteoporosis back then. No, you know, kids had to work the farm fields and kids had to work, you know, at at the, at the mill, you know, to help support their families. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the big pieces too, that, uh, Fagenbaum and Voided showed is this, this significant benefit for kids doing resistance, starting resistance training before they reach puberty. Um, you know, not just the mechanical bone growth, but they have a, 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 an article that shows that um, the kids who start resistance training before puberty have a nervous system that's better able to acquire motor skills, new motor skills later on in life hmm. compared to kids that start resistance training either during puberty or after puberty. And so the general conclusion that I got from that is if you've got a kid that starts resistance training before puberty, A, hopefully they continue resistance training as they age, but now they've got this really efficient and synchronized uh, neuromuscular system that when they're 40 and they pick up a tennis racket and they want to learn how to play tennis because, you know, their neighbor invited them to go play tennis, they're going to pick up the skills of the tennis game so much faster that the next thing you know, they're going to be playing it regularly until they're 60 years old, which means now they're, they're, they're continuously being active you know, through a lifespan. So when I, when I saw that data and I saw that line graph within that research article, I mean, that I thought to myself, again, with my oldest daughter, you know, that's going through that age right now and another one right behind her, you know, I'm trying to really emphasize to them, especially being females, like I want you to start learning how to do some of these movements because it's only going to benefit you when you're, you know, mom and dad's age or grandma and grandpa's age. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into the, the nuts and bolts of this. So Let's say you have Jimmy. He's well. He's 12. He's coming in for his first session at Rise. What are, What are your intakes? Do you use the FMS? Do you? What are your baselines that you set for these kids, and how do you develop your goals or programs? So the the struggle that I have right now, and it's one of my, I guess you can call it my big missions, objectives with Rise, is I haven't been really satisfied um, with the testing measurements that kids are using nowadays. Um, you know, I think we're all familiar with the whole presidential test, yeah. uh, fitness test that we did in elementary school. And you look at some of the tests that they're still doing now that I remember doing when I was in, you know, elementary school, you know, for example, they're doing the curl up test. Well, we now know that excessive spinal flexion is not good for your back. Yeah. Um, we're doing, they're still doing the push up test. Well, we now know that the limiting factor in the push-up is core stability and not necessarily upper body yeah. strength and stamina. Yeah. Um, and so there are these aspects. Oh, the other one's a wall sit. I know, great, but <laughs> when we're looking at athleticism, I'm pretty sure kids are not just sitting in one position for yeah. two minutes at a time. So one of my main goals, and I'm actually writing a grant uh, this week uh, and eventually doing a research study where I want to come come up with a battery of tests that's a little bit more innovative, that's a little bit more applied on how to measure these aspects of youth athleticism, or in other words, physical literacy, um, that's more dynamic, uh, that's more, again, innovative to the point where I'm hoping I can gather enough data where I can start to create and look for trends of um, normative data to almost create the SATs of youth athleticism if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so right now when a kid comes in, I perform tests for the sake of performing tests just because it's a baseline. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent happy with them right now. So what I do is I'll do uh, basic, you know, uh, vertical jump. Um, I'll do standing long jump. I'll do med ball, chest pass, kneeling, kneeling med ball, chest pass. Um, I'll try to have them do the push up test and I actually have them do a one legged wall sit. Um, and the reason for that is to look for asymmetries between right and left, but then also I don't have time to sit there for five minutes. You know, I want them done fairly quickly cause we've got other things to move on to. Um, I only FMS kids if they've kind of gone through their growth spurt. And so yeah. when I have a kid comes in, I kind of ask the parents, like, have you noticed, you know, 
this girl, has she gone through her growth spurt yet? If they say no, then I just don't feel like I need to actually put you through a full FMS if you're still, you know, a 10, 9, 10, 11 years yeah. old. I can kind of get an idea of what your weaknesses um, are going to be. I don't do any, you know, strength tests. Like I don't do any sort of like rep, rep max or obviously no like one rep max testing. Yeah. All I really want to see is how well you move. And then obviously some of these basic tests that are really easy to do, like a vertical jump and a standing yeah. long jump. Okay. So if you have this person come in and they're not the greatest mover, but whatever, the 12-year-old doesn't really care. All they want to do is jump higher or run faster. How do you how do you sneak in or how do you get in like the quote-unquote movement efficiency work, the corrective exercises, but also still entertain the 12-year-old and make sure you feel like – they feel like they're still working on running faster, whatever the scenario may be. Yeah. And it's all, it's all about uh, finding a way to relate with the kid and making the exercise or the hour relatable. Um, and obviously for, for me being 38 years old, that's kind of hard to figure out how I can relate to this 12 year old. But then that's why, you know, it's the, it's the affective piece of, of motor learning. Like you get to know the kid, like, what do you like to do? Like, what's fun? What do you like to eat? What do you like to do in your spare time? What position do you play? And so a perfect example is, you know, because I, I am very in with the softball world now, and obviously with my baseball background too, is if I'm trying to teach them how to do a hip hinge, um, I tell them, the position that you're trying to take when doing this hip hinge is the same position that we're taking when we feel the ground ball in the sense I want your feet, you know, obviously your feet are going to be wider than normal, uh, but your feet are going to be wide. Your hips are going to be back and your chest is going to fall over your knees so that your hands can get out in front. So when I'm working with a 12 year old, let's say Jimmy, who's a baseball player, for example, that's something that he'll be able to say, Oh, I can see why this exercise might possibly help me or, you know, if it's for hitting, you know, one of the primary positions that they have to get into in order to hit is a slight hip hinge where their chest falls over the plate so that their hands have a clear path to get through to get the bat on plane. So if I'm able to tell them that, you know, this kettlebell deadlift exercise, for example, is teaching your body how to get your hips out of the way while keeping your spine flat, that way you can learn how to get your hands through so you can be a better hitter. To them, they're going to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So really trying to relate the exercises uh, to their sport, again, maybe to a video game, to an athlete that they like to, to, to watch. That's my biggest way to try to motivate them because, you know, I just can't be like, all right, you know, three sets of 10 on um, dumbbell bench press, go ahead and go. You know, they, they need a little bit more of the why, like, why, why do I have to do this? Yeah. In, regards to the, in regards to the movement pattern and, and, and cleaning it up, um, I think the the most basic movement flaw that I'm seeing with kids is that they're a little bit too loosey goosey. Like they don't know, like I call it limp noodle. Like they just don't know how to stiffen and how, you know, how to create that rigidity. Um, and so I've had to be creative on some of the exercise that I'm doing, obviously some of the uh, cues that I'm using, uh, so one of my go-to exercises, especially for, you know, as a corrective exercise, quote unquote, for kids like that is I call it um, hugging med ball squats or hugging med ball split squats. And so I'll give them like a four pound medicine ball and I've got one of those perform better, like soft, you know, yeah. kind of like the Dynamax um, med balls. And I tell them, I want you to hug this med ball as tight as you can, like it's a teddy bear that you don't want to lose. And then while you're doing that, go ahead and do your squats. And then I'll even add some into it where I'll kind of like tap the med ball. And I say, okay, you know, don't let me let go of the med ball. So as they're going through their squats, they're teaching themselves how to get rigid with their upper body. And so trying to get them to feel that sensation of this is what it feels like to be tight. This is what it feels like to contract my muscles and create that rigidity. I mean, that's just an example of how I have to go about doing it. But um it's it's all about gosh analogies and metaphors and relatability yeah. in regards to cleaning up cleaning up their their movement patterns. Um, I like to use the term like perceived relevance. So even if you're working with a basketball kid and yeah. maybe it's not the most basketball specific exercise, if you put a ball in their hands while they do it, it just clicks. 
and they one will try harder, but two feel like what they're doing is correlating to the sport. And you could do that with a baseball bat. You could do that, whatever you could even just simulate it verbally. Like, Hey, pretend you're doing this and this, like you're in a game, kind of like you're hinting at and it. Yeah. It, it works wonders. Um, you're dead on. You're dead on yeah. when I'm doing the deadlift. I don't know how many times I've taught, I've told kids, show me your ground ball position. Yeah. And they and get they in get the position. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, that's exactly what I want you to do. And they're just like, yeah. Oh, that's it. I'm like, that's all you want. Yeah, the only, yeah. the only difference is that I actually want your hands underneath you. You're just going to pick up the kettlebell, stand up and then yeah. go back down. And then all of a sudden that they're able to perform it well, not perfect, but they're able to perform it well enough where I can be like, okay, now we can move with load because now yeah. you're understanding that position that I want you to get into. So the other thing you were kind of hinting at was almost training the neuromuscular system. So particularly with youth, right? You're not trying to necessarily get much hypertrophy or true strength gains. You'll whatever. If you did do the FMS, you'll notice that most of them are three out of threes on the mobility based drills, like a straight leg raise, but then you'll have them squat and they'll just be crappy. Um, I think that a lot of this is kind of that analogy of inputs and outputs. Like they don't know how to manage what you're asking or how to achieve the output that you're asking. Um, so if you think of that person, right, with the squat, that's not great. The goal isn't necessarily to build better strength with it, but better neuromuscular control. How do you go about doing that? Do you do like prolonged holes with squats? Or are you doing longer reps? How do you maybe do your parameters of sets and reps and load to maybe gear towards more of that neuromuscular change versus a hypertrophy strength change? So, um, so to start off general with your answer, um, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's been clearly noted in research that whether I'm working with a youth athlete, or I'm working with, um, a beginning strength trainer as like a 20 or 30 year old, they're going to elicit, uh, um, improvements through high volume, um, not necessarily through heavy loads. Um, but the high volume allows that, that continuous repetition and practice of their brain connecting with the, the nervous system in the correct way, in the correct order, with the correct agonists, antagonists, synergists, all that type of stuff, which will then lead to them lifting more weight because their body is more efficient in performing that goblet squat or whatever or whatever it may be. So, so how do you go you know, by vol volume being what? Like, yeah, it's so, for everybody. Um, it is different for everybody. So with kids, I do, you know, obviously we're doing a lot of fifth, sets of 15, reps, sets of 20. Um, I like, I don't do, you know, five sets of five repetitions with, you know, a, a heavy load. I mean, when I'm talking high volume, you know, they're doing at least 15 repetitions um, per set, you know, usually three to four sets, you know, per exercise. Um, and then obviously as volume goes up, you know, load is going to be, or intensity is going to be fairly, fairly low. And, um, so that way they're getting that, that repetition, they're getting the, the concept and that just that constant coaching of, you know, where should my shins be? What, you know, what should I be feeling? Where should my torso be? Where should my hands be? And then we just keep practicing it Yeah. in the sense of your specific question with the person that, like you said, can do really well on the shoulder mobility and active straight leg raise, but doesn't look too good on the overhead squat or the inline lunge because they're almost too loose. Mm -hmm. um, I, I actually am a, a fan of these isometric holds. And a lot of that is more for them to feel what it's like to be in that position. And like I mentioned earlier, to feel that stiffness and rigidity um, from my experience, if I just do a lots of reps sometimes, or I should say with, um, a kid that's specific to your, uh, um, situation that as you know, the more reps they do, it just gets sloppy, you know, after rep 12, after rep mm -hmm. 13, after it just kind of gets sloppy that sometimes I like to stop and just say, all right, let's get into like the quarter squat position. And then I just want you to hold it. And then I will provide them feedback, uh, to kind of get in a sense, okay, this is what you should feel. This is what you should see. Um, and the other thing that I like to use too, that kind of goes hand with, goes in hand with the isometrics is, um, tempo. So, uh, one of the biggest aspects of athleticism that I really look at is rhythm and, you know, whether it's a baseball, uh, hitter or whether it's uh, a pure, you know, basketball shooter, they've got rhythm when they 
set up to shoot. They have rhythm when they let go. And so I, I take the metronome out on my, on my iPad and I turn on the metronome and I try and challenge them to do the movement three seconds down, one second pause at the top, one second up. So it's not always, you know, three seconds down, three seconds up, or one second down, one second yeah. up. Yeah. So it's really challenging them cognitively to focus on the movement while staying in rhythm with the metronome, holding it for the right amount of seconds. And if they're doing, you know, eight to 10 reps of that stuff, we're talking, you know, 40, 50 seconds of work for one set yeah. while they're being conscious of their, their, their movement. Um, so without maybe getting into the, the fine details, what's like a standard program design like for you? Like, do you start with some prep or what's like your generalized flow for a training session? Um, so they come in and, uh, for the warm up, uh, I like to do something fun. Um, you know, a, an idea that I got from, um, fellow performance coach up here, Eric Jernstrom and physical therapist, Ryan Baugus is I, I was, I had the opportunity to watch, uh, them train Brandon cooks a couple summers ago and their warm up was actually to play spike ball and they played spike ball for a good, you know, 30 minutes or so. And I thought to myself, I think kids would really enjoy this. And so, yeah. uh, so one of the things we do for warm up that a lot of the kids like to do is we'll play spike ball. And again, you've got that reactive piece to it. You've got hand-eye coordination. Um, and so we'll play spike ball, obviously like a kid version um, of spike ball. We'll do that. Um, I'll, I'll take them out and I'll have them run football routes and I'll just throw them footballs. So now they're tracking a ball, hand-eye coordination. They're working on cutting and angles. We'll play twister. You know, we talk about mobility and body control. Um, uh, so I try to find ways to kind of do something fun to start with. Um, I like to do a lot of jump roping too, because again, it has that rhythm piece. It creates that stiffness, that bounce off the ground. Cause as you can imagine, a lot of parents want their kids to, to run faster and jump higher. Um, I incorporate core work or pillow work because again, a lot of kids I find are a little bit too loose. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know how to get themselves tight. Um, and then we'll kind of, after the, that warm up, we'll get into speed and power. And I think kids don't sprint, jump, throw enough. Um, even though they're playing sports. So one of my go-tos are uh, flying 10-yard sprints. So I'll give them some a space, kind of build up, and they just, I just tell them, you know, I want you to run through these, you know, timing lights like, you know, like a, like a lion's chasing you, you know, and sometimes I'll make it competitive or actually put their partner or their sibling further down, and I actually ask their partner to chase them so they can kind of get into that fight or flight, you know, mode. Yeah. Uh, lots of med ball throws, you know, uh, hurdle jumps, box jumps. I do uh, also depth drops where they step off of a box and land in a good athletic position. Again, kind of reinforcing that movement technique, getting stiff, um, you know, the, the basic athletic position. And then the last half hour or so, we, we finish it up with, you know, combos, triceps, where I'll, I'll balance out, you know, pushing, pulling, hip hinging, squat. Um, you know, and, and my goal is that they perform somewhere between 80 to 100 repetitions of each movement within that hour total to really diversify their movement portfolio, I guess you can say, um, and especially under load. So even if it's a 15-pound yeah. kettlebell that they're using, but they're doing goblet squats, that's 80 repetitions of goblet squats that's performed well with, with weight. And like I said, I incorporate tempos, pause holds, we'll do ball drops and they have to do the repetition when they see something so that you add that reactive piece to it. Sometimes I'll actually have the kids lead. So if they're doing squats together, I'll have one person, you know, they can go down as fast as they want. They can come up whenever they want, as slow as they want. And the other person has to follow. So again, it's just a way to break up the monotony that I think us adults could handle, but obviously kids can't, kids, yes. kids can't handle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, Another topic I want to pick your brain on is recovery and diet. This has actually picked up a lot of steam lately, professional, collegiate, even just recreational athletes in training. You know, you can't out-train a crappy diet. You know, sleep's build up so much evidence and momentum behind the value of sleep, which I think is all amazing and really important. But when you get into the youth athlete, it kind of – everything changes, right? So what do the youth eat – I mean, you're probably not giving youth like a high protein diet like you might give an adult if they're doing a bunch of training. 
sleep with youth is different than an adult. I know the adult is the eight to nine hours. I've, I'm not sure what the evidence is on youth, but how do you approach the recovery side of things and um, even nutrition in some ways? So that, that that's that's a piece that's my weakness, and I, and I yeah. will obviously um, admit to that. And I yeah. don't cover the nutrition and the recovery piece as much with the youth through Rise as I did yeah. when I was at the college setting because you know, you got high performance and then you've got kids in general, yes. but at the yes. same time, it doesn't mean that I can't. And so what, what I usually do is I'll ask them, I, well, I like food. So I, one of the, one of the questions I always ask kids when they come is, Oh, what'd you have for breakfast today? What'd you have for lunch? And I just kind of listen to, you know, what they had for breakfast, what they had for lunch. And so, you know, one thing I get a lot, obviously is I had peanut butter and jelly. I'm like, oh, really good. You know, what's the, what's the best part of the sandwich? Is it the jelly or is it the peanut butter? You know, just, you know, things like that, you know. Yeah. And then obviously I get kids. I say, oh, what'd you have for lunch? It's like, well, I had a, a pack of gummies. I had some hummus and carrots. And I had, um, what's the other one they say? Like uh, goldfish crackers. Yeah. It's like, okay, um, what'd you have for breakfast? It's like, oh, I had yeah. like cereal. I'm like, okay, yeah. did your cereal have milk in it? It's like, uh, yes, no. But yeah. so th- that based on what I'm getting at is, so where's the protein, you know, where's, yeah. you know, yes, you had carrots, but like, where's the protein that you're getting? Or in some situations, well, most situations with kids, like, where's the vegetables, like, you know, that you're having or training's over, where are you going to go eat for dinner? Oh, we're going to, you know, Burgerville. It's like, okay, but what are you going to have? At, you know, yeah. so it's, it's little conversations like that, that. I try and plant the seed of like, how much water did you drink? How much protein did you get today? Did you eat? a couple of vegetables today. Um, I don't really follow up on it, but right now I'm just trying to plant the seed in their ear that they should be, you know, looking out for these things. Um, in regards to sleep, um, I think the last time I saw, I think it's 10 hours for elementary school kids, uh, the sleep that they should be getting. Um, I, again, I, I, I don't ask kids, you know, I don't ask parents, oh, so what time do they go yeah. to bed? Um, yeah. Again, it's just not not a piece that I really have gotten into that much. Um, you know, are parents so, asking you like, "Hey, should my kid be eating whatever a protein bar after being here?" Or what are you like? Your do parents talk to you about that at all? Or um, I no, you know, not really. Yeah. I've had I had a middle schooler last year um, who he did he did such a phenomenal job with transforming his lifestyle once he started at Rice to the point where the kid lost like 20 some pounds oh, wow. in the um, basically two and a half months that, that I had him with. And it's because he took to heart some of the things that we were doing and some of the things that we were talking about and he brought it home and was more active. You know, he started cutting out uh, certain um, like breads and uh, rices and he started eating more chicken. And I mean, he was a kid that really took to heart yeah. Um, but in regards to parents asking me, I haven't had really any parents ask me about what should my kid be eating, um, or how much sleep should they be getting? Um, it's just one of those things that maybe we just haven't gotten to yet, or just the kids that I have just, that's just not an issue uh, or a problem, you know, with them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Do you do, do you do balance training? Is that like a pillar in your training? I know with adults, balance gets worse and worse as we get older, but do you even notice that being an issue with youth? Um, I have had kids come to, yeah. to rise and their, their, their parents will say, uh, she can't even stand on one, one, on one leg for 10 seconds. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's something that we can go about, you know, improving. And so one of the warm up drills that I incorporate, um, uh, I guess you can call it a core, you know, core pillar exercise mm-hmm. is um, is basically single leg balancing to the point where they're doing like a single leg RDL. Um, so I have yeah. cones set up around their foot and I ask them to, you know, bend over and touch this cone with your right hand, bend over yeah. and touch this cone all the way to them just standing on one foot. And we'll just do med ball chest passes, you know, while yeah. they're standing on one foot. Um, obviously, split squat, you know, has a, a balance component to it. So while I don't necessarily make it a point to work on balance every session, I feel like the diverse exercises that are incorporated within the session kind of addresses some of those things. Um, 
But I think just like uh, adults, you know, I've got some kids yeah. with outstanding balance and I've got some kids, like I said, that just can't stand on one foot for, for more than five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I kind of want to pivot a little bit and step back. If we look at just youth training as a, as an industry from PTs to trainers to chiropractors, whoever, uh, what do you think is like a big thing in general that we're missing? Maybe doing too much of or too little of or what are some shortcomings just as a general field? Um, well, I, I think, you know, one of the things, one of the things that I'm seeing um, since getting into more of the youth side is obviously the, the push of early specialization yeah. and just how we're not understanding that, you know, 12 year old, Billy or whatever is not a mini elite athlete. Like they're, they're still a kid, you know, and they need to be uh, able to behave like a kid and have time to be a kid. And so, you know, I, I know on social media, I see all of these, you know, um, infograms or just these educational pieces about, you know, the pitfalls of early specialization. But then when I talk to parents, it's like, they're still choosing to go that route, which again, it's fine. You know, they, they just want to do what's best for their kids. And so I think we need to do a better job of trying to, again, just like the kids, almost disguise uh, the parents to allow them, allow the kid to do something that's a little bit different um, in regards to a movement or regards to um, a sport. Um, you know, one of the other misconceptions that kind of goes along with what I'm talking about is this idea of Instapot versus Crock-Pot. And so I gave this talk at the uh, NSCA regional conference uh, a couple months ago where, you know, we all love the Instapot. You can cook, you know, fabulous dinners in 30 minutes or whatever it may be. But we all know that some of the best meats that we cook are the ones that are smoking on the Traeger for hours on end or making that traditional clue a pig in an emote that takes hours and hours on end. But when it's hungry. done, that's, that's, <laughs> that stuff tastes really, really good. But here we are trying to take our kids and we're trying to instapot them into Mike Trout or Steph Curry or, um, you know, that, that, that next elite athlete. When we have to understand that patience is the key, let the 12 year old do 12 year old things and that they will eventually progress to what 14 year olds do to what 16 year olds do and let the process kind of take care of it, take care of itself. But again, we're in a society where we want it now. I want to see my kid doing it now. And I'm not going to lie as a parent, as a coach, I fall into that pit as well with my own kids, but I sometimes have to take a step back and be like, she's 11 or she's nine or that, that kid is only 13. Like it's going to take time for them to understand um, not just the skill, but then obviously the cognitive aspects of like work ethic and discipline. Like it's going to take time for them to, to understand that. Yeah. And I, I hate the trend of gym and school dying away because of budget cuts. And I kind of wish we had 1950s gym class still where you would climb a rope and jump over bars and stuff like that. And so at least they would get it in at school and then maybe play their sport out of school. But Really, their sports, their only way they're getting athletic movement, kind of like you're hinting at. They're not going on bike rides like they used to because maybe it's not as safe as it once was. And, yeah, it's this dilemma that's slowly brewing, and I don't necessarily see big changes coming soon. No, I don't because it's, it's, it all comes down to financial and money. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you got to cut the money somewhere. And, you know, unfortunately across the country, the, the thing that's getting cut is is this physical education piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Last but not least, I always ask everybody this. Capacity is kind of the theme. What's uh, something you're working on to improve your capacity, either as a strength coach, a teacher, a father? What's like your your current project to make Cisco even better? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so like I mentioned earlier, um, I got this grant going that I'm trying to write in this research development for um, objectifying youth athleticism slash physical literacy. Um, you know, so assuming all of that goes well, I'm hoping I can start collecting data in January, just going around to middle schools and elementary schools in the, you know, in the area here, just asking if I can basically test their kids, uh, test their kids out. Um, 
you know, um, I'm also developing a softball baseball side of Rise, oh, cool. uh, which is something that I've always been wanting to do since I originated uh, Rise a little over a year ago. So, you know, looking into the literature on, you know, baseball mechanics, softball mechanics, talking to professionals, networking, lots of baseball related podcasts on really all it comes down to is just skill acquisition and motor yeah. learning. Um, and then also incorporating some of the, the data, I guess you can call it the sports science behind, um, baseball, softball for rise for possible like remote coaching, which kind of goes into the next project is developing an online platform for rise. So I can share my training system, you know, with others across the country. Um, and just again, emphasize the need for physical literacy and how strength training can absolutely play a role in, in helping with kids, both physically and emotionally. Um, I'm constantly networking with professionals. I call them coffee dates. So <laughs> just any, any chance I have to meet with students that are in the area, other professionals that just moved here, just hearing their story, listening to their journey um, to give me inspiration, but then also to give me ideas on how I can be a better professor, be a better academic, be a better you know, coach, owner, business owner, father, husband, et cetera. Um, I'm also doing a lot of talk, just talking with parents to get an idea of what's going on inside their head and what is it that they want and need for their kids so I can continue to evolve the offerings that Rise has so I can meet them halfway, if anything, and really provide some some support uh, through through Rise. Um, my gosh, I, we just got out of a meeting. We're looking at, or we are revamping our curriculum here at Linfield to make it more student friendly as well as innovative with the hopes of eventually, um, having a master's degree, uh, mm -hmm. here, here at Linfield. So that's some curricular stuff that I got going on. Uh, I think all it comes down to is just even with all that is just working to increase my capacity to be more present with my family because I've yeah. got so many ideas and so many projects going on that I, I have to remember that I can't neglect the people who are the most important to me, which is my beautiful wife and my, and my three kids. So yeah. just learning how to either improve my capacity, enhance my capacity, or change the priorities within the capacity that I have now to be more present when I am home and instead of being on my phone doing business stuff or doing school stuff, um, you know, all, all the time. So yeah. I'm a lifelong learner. I enjoy that stuff. I'm always trying to find ways to to stimulate my brain. So I think improving my capacity or optimizing my capacity is not really going to be much of an issue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I like this last point you made. I know it's something I struggle with. Is you know, you have such a big task list that you're trying to work out, and you you get home after a long day, but that task list just sticks with you, and you come home and whatever you open your phone and start playing. Where I know we give our kids a hard time about playing on phones, but it's like my yeah. for myself to stop playing on the phone, playing be, but yeah, it's yeah. it's hard being present. Yeah. It's got, it's well, like like you, like like yeah. you, you and I for our own respective businesses, like we're yeah. we're we're a one man show. Yeah. We're the coach, we're the therapist, we're the marketing director, yeah. we're the social media director. So <laughs> if I'm on my phone, I'm not just on Facebook. Like I'm actually yeah. making pictures on on an app that can go yeah. on a flyer. That can yep. go, you know, somewhere. I mean, it's just little things, or I'm responding to an email, or I'm working on a spreadsheet. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just constant. But sometimes I just have to remember, you know, put it, put it away. Like it, it'll be there later. You know, let's just take this next couple hours to really focus on, you know, the, the primary thing at hand right now, which is family. So if people are interested in seeing what you're doing or following you, what are what are some ways? How can people get in touch with you or follow you? So uh, social media. Uh, Instagram, uh, I'm pretty active, and so my my handle is just at rise pdx. So R I S E P D X. Um, you can follow me there. Uh, same thing on Facebook. I got a Facebook page. Uh, you can look up Rise uh, Training and Consulting LLC. Uh, my website uh, www.rise-training.com. Uh, I've got a weekly blog on there. I've got uh, just general information on physical literacy and youth athleticism and early specialization. I've got exercise libraries, videos um, that's on there that, that, um, that parents and kids and other coaches can kind of refer to. Uh, and obviously anybody that has any questions can please feel free to email me. Um, 
uh, the, the, uh, you could just email me through my, my Linfield or I guess even my Rise. I'll just use my Rise account. Uh, so yeah. it's just uh, Cisco at rise-training.com. So R-I-S-E hyphen T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G.com. Um, and again, I'm, I'm all about networking. So any way that I can help others and learn from others, I'm all about it. Well, awesome. Thanks for taking the time. Great talk. And uh, we'll have to get in touch again later. Absolutely, Nick. Again, thanks for the opportunity to, to be on your podcast. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks. All right. See ya. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Our goal is to help individuals like you learn practical knowledge you can apply today. If you want more information about how you can improve your capacity, visit our website at capacitypt.com. We have tons of info, including blogs, exercise videos, ebooks, and more. We're soon to offer services such as mentorship for clinicians and trainers, as well as online rehab and training. Stay tuned. If you liked this episode, it would mean the world to us to leave a review. Again, our goal is to help and influence as many people as possible, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. Leave us a review, tell your friends about it, shoot us an email with your feedback. We wish everybody the best. Expand your capacity.